Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Thank you for joining us. Today, I'd like to talk about a sensitive topic. As a career journalist, there are very few writers that inspire me with their ability to captivate me by the heart and lead me on a journey with their storytelling. Anthony Bourdain was one of those storytellers. He had an amazing way of making me feel like I was sitting at the table with him as he interviewed people from all walks of life. And what I admired most was how he showed us that no matter where we're from, what we believe, and regardless of our faith, our cultural background, or the color of our skin, we all have more in common than the differences that seem to divide us. From all outward appearances, he seemed to have it all. He had the dream job, traveling the world, getting to experience things few people ever will, and he seemed so carefree and happy doing it. So when I heard that he had taken his own life and suicide, it was absolutely shocking. It was also a stark reminder that this week marks the anniversary of the suicide of our amazing producer, Wendy West. I'll never forget the day I arrived at the studio to do a show where our engineer was waiting to tell me that she was gone. It came without warning, no outward signs that she was in distress. She seemed so happy, so full of life. Unfortunately, this is all too common, and it's happening at an alarming rate. There are more than 44,000 recorded suicides that happen every single year. We've talked a lot about the tragic loss of life due to the opiate epidemic, and we've also talked about the disproportionately high rate of suicide among our veterans, on average 22 or more a day. And I wanted to talk about it again today because suicide is preventable if only we can become aware of the signs. And I believe that if we understand what drives someone to it, then maybe we'll be able to intervene. At least it's worth a try. That's the topic of our show today, and we have a returning guest. Dan Schmink is a combat veteran who found healing and comfort by using cannabis to treat PTSD and a debilitating back injury he sustained in the line of duty at war. He's an advocate for cannabis while educating and empowering veterans, civilians, and healthcare providers through events and programs that help them understand its healing benefits and how to overcome the stigma and other barriers to access. Having experienced what it's like to come dangerously close to suicide, he understands the importance of sharing his own experiences with loved ones and finding purpose through creative outlets and self-care. Dan, thank you so much for being here and being willing to talk about such a sensitive topic. I uh, definitely appreciate the, the opportunity. As I mentioned, suicide is such an insidious problem, and I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling helpless when I learn that you know, someone I know has suffered deeply enough to do it without any outward signs. I mean, this is something you've courageously talked about in the past, and I was hoping you could shed some insight into what goes on in the mind when someone is close to it. It's like a, a small swirl that starts in a pool. You know, with enough momentum, eventually that swirl can turn from a very small drifting wave 
into a wave that now has downward force that keeps pulling and pulling and pulling and it feeds itself. And so eventually you're stuck at the bottom and you can't swim up. How do we get from A to B? That's the, the process that we have to really look at. That's the, the issue that's really not being addressed through the VA and through other organizations. Uh, and that's why ultimately, you know, it has to start at the very beginning before it has enough momentum because anything else after that is trying to tr treat a symptom or a set of symptoms that just cannot be stopped. The momentum's too strong at that point. You have to get to the root of the cause. And likening it again to insidious is I, I believe it starts, you know, once you get back home. When, when I first landed, I was on the, I was on the C-130 and then the C-117 and then finally on a, just a civilian airliner that was taking us international. And all the way back, you know, we got to stop in Germany. We got a, a two-beer limit stopped and enjoyed ourselves and, you know, kind of kicked our shoes off like we're done. But I remember starkly, I got home, I sat in my brand new barracks bunk for the first time, and I was part of the, one of the first waves that got back. And sitting on that bed, I, all I was thinking was, I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, by that point, I'm 21 years old, and everything I've known since getting out of high school until that point was war, training for war, going to war, living, sleeping, breathing, eating, you know, dreaming of war watching war movies and prepping for something that very real realistically could take my life. How am I supposed to feel? Cause I have nobody to tell me now, you know, left, right, left, or dress, right, dress. How do I relate to anybody who has gone through this? And so that is where I think the insidious part of it starts is you start questioning, you start doubting, you start having guilt or shame. And the moments that gave you so, so much joy in combat, you know, suddenly now become sources of mental conflict because that joy in war is usually because you won and somebody else lost. And ultimately, war is a lethal playing field. So I think that is, is the root of the entire cause is those questions, those, those doubts, and those memories that, you know, I'm now going to be 32 this year. And I still remember them as if they're yesterday. I talked to my friends, some of them through Facebook, that are on the other side of the United States. And as soon as I talked to them, I can remember the days of sitting in a Humvee, wearing our uniforms, wearing our helmets, sweating our asses off, going, we should have joined the Air Force. And it's just like it was yesterday. And all the happy moments, all the bad moments, just as strong. But all of that ultimately led to my survival in one of the most crucial times of my brain's development. And so all of those survival mechanisms that I learned, those habits, those character traits, that bond with my brothers, all of that ultimately affects everything else in my life. And so when that trust of people is what kept you alive in combat, how do you come home when everybody that you can trust to have that type of bond with is scattered across the nation? And now you're surrounded in your next unit, the, the civilian unit. And most of them can't relate because they can't understand what the, is sitting behind the eyes. And even if you told them, they wouldn't truly get it. It might be a cool story or a sad story or a painful story or it might be a little morbid. Maybe a little funny sometimes, but they just don't get it. And so when you come home, you have those thoughts, those questions, those doubts, and you can't relate to anybody. And even in your happy times, some people might go, man, you guys are crazy. Why are you going 120 miles on a motorcycle and drag your knee on the ground? Uh, you know, because I jump into things to make me feel alive again because combat's such a rush. Life should be a rush. How do I get to that again? How do I get to A to B? And it's almost a high because ultimately it's just hormones that are released and chemicals create reactions like the body for you to feel a certain way, you know, dopamine, serotonin, all these things release. And what kept you alive, made you feel good, or made you feel safe is reinforced. And those same endangering moments of war, you seek in regular life, jumping out of airplanes, riding motorcycles, going really fast, um, some, sometimes even getting into conflicts just because it feels good. And a lot of times it starts with that thought of, well, now what? Or what do I do? Let me ask you something. Because it's when you're sitting on my side of this equation and you're interacting with people who have been through what you've been through and they're showing us on the outside what they're not feeling on the inside. You can look at someone and they appear to be so incredibly adjusted and happy. Uh, 
you've given me really good insight into what might be going through someone's mind when they're talking to a civilian. But how would you suggest that someone who doesn't understand what you've gone through look for signs that you would be in crisis? I really like that question. Thank you for asking that. That's probably the biggest part of what we were just talking about is how do you relate to the civilian unit that you're in now? And there's a lot of times where, I mean, like when I got back, uh, I was touchy about this question. When, you know, when I got back and my college buddies would, would invite me to parties and I was the token soldier. Oh, yeah, the guy who went to, to the army is back from war. Woohoo! You know, they're happy. It was like a party ornament. And, you know, they would ask, so did you kill anybody? Just completely insensitive. They looked at it more like, oh, that's really cool. Hey, we have a veteran here. And it was kind of appreciation sake. It was insulting. Or on the other side of things, people would come up and absolutely go out of their way to thank you. Oh my God, thank you for your service. You're a hero, all of these things. And I've never related to either of those statements. I didn't feel I needed to be thanked, number one. A lot of us feel that we don't need to be thanked. A lot of us ask to go there. It's just a decision. And I owned it and I accepted it. It was my choice. So I don't feel like I need to be thanked. Uh, the third part of it is that a lot of times they come up and they ask a lot of questions, a lot of stories. And sometimes we don't want to talk about it because when you talk about something, you're accessing that memory. And it's so near to the, to the front of our memories at any given moment. We sometimes just don't want to even talk about it. Um, so I, I say all those, those different things. And I don't want to put off anybody from saying thank you for your service because some of us really do appreciate it. And it still feels good to be reminded that, yes, we did serve our country. But what I am saying is that it's kind of a case-by-case basis. Uh, these days, I've had people straight up ask, you know, oh, so did you shoot anybody? And I give them the same answer. I don't know. Um, a lot of us don't know. <laughs> when you get to combat, it's, you know, there's, there's targets, and then they're not there anymore. So you don't know. But with that said, trying to understand how to ask those questions, just look for us to actually be comfortable. It's very hard for us to get comfortable in public because when you're in a combat zone, you know, if we think about uh, safety, Safety in a combat zone goes to the person who is the person or unit who is in control at the moment. Whoever's in control has safety. Whoever's the most information has safety. So when you have, when you have soldiers that go out into public, I, I mean, I'm still like this sometimes. If I go to a place I have not been before and I'm walking into a room that I've never walked around, I don't know where the exits are at. I don't know where the danger spots are at. I don't know where my sight lines are at. Like, it's all things that I was trained for that I, I just can't turn off. It's a skill set that's always running. So that will make me very anxious. I'm using my, myself as an example. So I'm walking, I'm walking through my, my situation. I walk into a room. I don't know these people. I haven't been here before. Now I'm going to be a little bit on edge physically because my body is ready to fight because it doesn't know. It doesn't have control. It doesn't have safety. And as soldiers, if you don't have safety, if you don't have complete control of your AO, your area of operations, you got to do something about it. Okay, well, let me go find a corner, sit with my back to it and just people watch for a minute and kind of get my bearings and go through my breathing exercises and relax. That's kind of what it looks like now for really bad days. Before, really bad days used to look like, okay, let me keep my eyes down. Let me just make myself smaller because at this point I was a huge guy when I got back and I wanted to not intimidate people. I had someone come up to me and go, hey, man, you look awesome. Are you a football player? And however I looked at them when they said that, they backed up and said, well, I was just giving you a comment. Even though inside, I, was, I thought I was smiling. And so because you're so used to being stone-faced military person, when you go out into public, some people take even our signs of happiness as, oh, whoa, uh, that's intense. You know, they drilled all of it into us, and it's hard to undo that. And it didn't really resonate that I was doing these subconscious behaviors until some point I'm out. And the reason I bring that up is when we come home, and we have all of these actions and behaviors and thought patterns that are rewarded from the military lifestyle and combat. It's not necessarily rewarded by the civilian unit. And trying to connect with them is really hard sometimes. Uh, that's why there's been a lot of us that are actively putting the voice out saying, you know, we have a story. Here's what we went, we went through. You know, my, my own story, mine is more of a personal injury. Uh, my back was messed up for like 10, 12 months with my 15-month deployment, lightning bolt shooting down my, my, my toes, got back. You know, I tried pills here and there, but I'm one of those people where if it affects me a little bit, I know over time it's going to affect me a lot worse. And I chose to say no and instead have the pain because I could think just a little bit clearer 
with lightning bolts shooting through my back into my toes. And that was just the mindset of, okay, well, I'm more functional in pain than I am on pills. Easy equation. Take the pain, figure it out. And so when I got back out of service, that same pain was what kept me kind of from connecting to the people because I always had that mental fog of I'm trying not to feel this. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask, were there times when you felt because of your experiences, because of your pain, because of your memories of being in combat, did you ever feel as though you were on the brink of suicide for any reason? And what was it about that experience that might have helped you? And if it's too sensitive, then you don't need to talk about it. Over the years, I've gotten more comfortable talking about that piece of it. Uh, initially, it was kind of a, it was a piece of shame. And it was a, 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 actually another reason why sometimes I would go down the brink of, of guilt, shame, guilt, shame, guilt, shame cycle. It's an interesting thought. When you're trained to be a machine and be perfect, you know, I was a cavalry scout. And when I deployed with 10th Mountain, it was to the Triangle of Death in Baghdad. And they told us that after we got there. Hey, welcome to the Triangle of Death. <laughs> so we kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of shocked. Like, all right, cool. Well, now this is real. And even then, it wasn't really sitting in. But I don't like in any of those experiences of the increasing danger of the zone to the increasing danger of my own mind once I got home. Because in that type of arena, perfection was demanded and it was required. Because if I'm walking through, say, through a city and I kick a rock or a, a, a fucking, like a soda can or something and I make a small noise, that small noise could be big enough and that one mistake could kill all of us if now we're surrounded or something. So on the possibility of the worst case that we've always planned for as a soldier, and even to this day, I still plan worst case first. It's uh, what's gotten me here. It's what got me through war. And I, you know, it's not something uh, I want to turn off really. You know, if you start from the bottom on up, everything is, okay, well, everything is as expected, but you know, we'll touch on that. Um, so with the danger of my own mind, it was kind of like a double-edged sword. They trained me to be a very sharp thinker, to always think smarter to find ways to accomplish more with less resources. You know, it's great and if you can channel it to be an entrepreneur. Uh, but at the same time, that double-edged sword is so hypercritical with every single thing that could possibly happen. And all the 1,000, 1 million scenarios of what could happen are trying to be processed by your mind all at once. And so everything during, during your life is a mission. Even like how I was talking about when I would go from the car to the classroom. That was my mission. Okay, get here 10 minutes prior. It gives me seven minutes to walk up, get to class three minutes before when everyone's coming out. I sit down, grab my seat that I want in the very far back in the corner with perfect sight line of the, of the entire room. And that was my mission. Now, if for some reason I were to slip up during that mission, have a bad interaction with somebody in the hallway where I felt like I was a little awkward or I might have scared them, I was always worried about scaring people because I knew I was intimidating and I was trying to be softer with smiles and it's hard to learn that stuff when being stone-faced for three years was the, kind of the, the method of the day. But being so hypercritical of every interaction down to if I shake someone's hand, can I shake it too hard? Did I shake it too soft? Did it come across well? Like, these aren't things I ever wanted to really deal with or think about. Um, military life was simple. Civilian life was not to make decisions for myself. Nobody taught me how, how to be an adult. So every single thing is hypercritical because you're literally learning on the job for how to be an adult in the civilian sector. And they didn't teach us to do that. They didn't teach me to be a veteran. They taught me how to be a soldier. And so when you start having questions and kind of going down that swirling whirlpool we talked about and it starts getting deeper and deeper, you don't know how to deal with that. You don't know how to process these emotions. And eventually you go ask for help. And that right there, that was the first part and the hardest part of that journey was asking for help, knowing that I didn't trust myself to go home. There were days where, like, like you had just mentioned, people on the outside look so perfect. They're so happy. I was that guy. But at home or during the day, I was thinking, okay, well, I have my Glock 23. It's up in the closet. And, you know, and eventually all those thoughts, all those questions, you know, kind of gets to, well, I don't know what my worth is. And uh, you don't know what your worth is, what your purpose is, which was your, how you were valued in the military, your purpose. 
an accomplishment each day. Um, it, it's really tough. So I, it might even sound like too irrational, but like the smallest things that maybe I messed up on or I didn't get a grade. Like I failed a, a test in college and I about blew my brain down. Um, it's pathetic. And at that time, like that's what I felt was actually more ashamed that I was having the thoughts than worried that I was having them. But it was tough. Like I ended up getting rid of that thing because I just didn't want to have it around because it was a constant like temptation. I was going to ask about that too, because when someone is considering taking their own life, having access to a way to do it seems like an enormous danger, but it's a very confusing topic to me because I think everybody has really down moments, but there are experiences in life like what you were talking about that can actually make you a lot more vulnerable to those feelings of hopelessness or imperfection that don't mesh with what it is that you've learned, your learned psychology. You know, it's, it's so hard being on the outside looking at this and it's suicide is just, it's just such a scary, a scary thing. And this was really a tough week for me remembering my producer, mm -hmm. Wendy and what, you know, this, yeah. I know you met her when you were in the studio. I remember her. It was a, a year ago this week that she took her own life and it was such a shock. I couldn't believe it. But who knew? I mean, I didn't know. And I felt really guilty for not knowing because we talked, we talked a lot like in between and you know, she was my producer. <laughs> it was just, it yeah. was. It, but like it, you said, it's insidious and it's the, it's the hidden secret. It really just feels like survivor's guilt for those of us who do know people who have taken their own life. And to try to understand what it is that we can do, I guess just being on the outside looking in, my question would be when you were feeling these sort of downward spiral moments, what do you think it was that stopped you, number one? And number two, I wonder what sort of comforting words could someone have said and did anything that someone said affect that? And would it affect others who are going through the same thing? You know, I, I can only speak for myself. Um, definitely, I, I don't know enough to, to say what would work best for all veterans. But I know it worked for me. And the, the, the biggest thing that helped was I had people in my life who I could just call and say, I'm having a really bad time right now. And I don't know if this even makes sense, but I just need to say what I'm feeling to get an outside perspective. And there were friends that I had that I could call. And if it was another veteran, you know, we, we had kind of an SOP for how to deal with each other and remind ourselves, like, you know what, uh, this will pass. You know that. Get back to your checklist. What's your plan of action? How are you going to do something about this? And who will impact? Do you want to do that? No, you don't. Why do you want to do that? Reinforce the positive feelings. And then... Uh, you kind of help them walk their, their way back up. Um, the, the biggest thing that has ever helped me is being able to tell someone who could take the, the emotions, whether it's, you know, the, 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 the worst despair that you've ever felt or whether it's just you have all this anger inside and you can't control it and you don't know how to stop it because you could feel it start. And then it started getting bigger and bigger and your body wanted to fight and then, and then you just feel it kind of take control and, you know, being able to kind of open up and share that with someone, whether it was a veteran at 12 or one in the morning, whether it was a girlfriend, whether it was a friend, being able to actually open up and without judgment, just tell them what's going on in my head. That was the number one thing that it was, that helped me out is that, that bond, uh, you know, for veterans that have called me when they need to kind of reset, what I immediately do is I kind of break their frame, you know, logically, because logic tends to work very well for us. Uh, okay, well, let's look at, let's look at the factors here. What's going on? How did you get to that decision? And then like what I typically do is if along the way to their decision-making process, I see points where their judgment is very, this is the path I'm taking as opposed to accounting for all the variables. Those are the moments I find where we can have discussion to where they feel it and they see it and they think it and then they relax that what they were thinking maybe wasn't as bad as our mind was letting us believe. 
because that was worst case if everything lined up in the worst case possible or worst possible way every way. Um, but then you look at like, well, maybe it isn't so bad because of this. And then you kind of, kind of talk them out of it. And that's what's worked with me. That's what's worked with other veterans. And you know, like I've been saying for years, it, it always starts with a, with a real conversation. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear you say that because, you know, it gives me hope in a lot of ways when I think about it. And I know also I want to get to cannabis, the topic of our show. (laughs) We circle back to cannabis and, and I really am grateful that you've opened up so much on this because it's really a perplexing issue that I've been bothered by and especially hearing more and more people having taken their own lives and you think, oh, if only. But it's good to know that those conversations do help. And, you know, it's still a mystery how to really recognize it from someone who is showing you that smile on the outside. But you've been a big advocate for cannabis and especially on behalf of veterans and helping to educate people about the benefits of cannabis, especially for treating PTS. Tell me in your experience how, if someone is trying to come up and out of that sort of debilitating, frustrating uh, condition, and they've been given all kinds of anti-anxiety medicines, what do you tell fellow veterans uh, about how cannabis can help? So what I would say to anybody, especially veterans that are currently looking at prescription pill use and the different methods that we've seen not work, um, definitely do some research. You know, if you just start doing research, start digging into what is out there about the endocannabinoid system, how we already have receptors that we were born with to interact and produce effects with these cannabinoids that we intake. You know, once you start digging into the rabbit hole, there's just too much evidence and too many people that are standing up like myself and say, this helped me. I'm better today than I was yesterday. I'm more functional today than I was yesterday. My, my hip and shoulder impingements are manageable because I can consume some cannabis, get the anti-inflammatory effects, be able to move around, go to the gym and do my yoga and everything else so that I can now manually fix the issues that have been there for years. But consuming cannabis, I actually made some progress to where days would just lay on the couch because my body wasn't all like on fire because it was in pain to where now I can walk around and, you know, the pain will start later on in the night and I have some CBD bomb. You know, I was against cannabis until I was 22 years old. I did not smoke it, didn't want to be around it, didn't want to be around people that even looked at it. Like, in my mind, I was going to smoke cannabis and stab needles into my arms. You know, their program taught me well. But at 22 years old, I tried cannabis, and it was completely the opposite of what I expected. What really convinced me to even try it again was, I number one, I, I laughed for, you know, for the first time in a long time. And my back felt great. And it wasn't even the best stuff. It was some Reggie. And then once I tried some real medical, I was in the bed laying there like I had taken one of the strongest muscle relaxers ever. And the next morning, I woke up and I had no hangover, no side effect, didn't have a headache. I just felt very relaxed and very limber. And I was able to move around like, wow, my back didn't hurt. To see what was possible, I completely opened my mind. The taboos that were in place were there many, many years ago. And a lot of those taboos and the drug war and all of that, you know, it's all in Google now. So when you look at the facts and you look at the timeline, we got here because of a lot of propaganda and a lot of opinions. We're now getting out of that era because of science and stories and results and examples in every single state where cannabis is legal. We're seeing it with CBD. We're seeing it with full plant, full spectrum, THC-containing cannabis. We're seeing it with isolates. We're seeing it with balms. We're seeing it in food supplements. And because of that, we know that terpenes and cannabinoid terpenes, or cannabis terpenes, sorry, are very, very similar. And that foods that have had anti-inflammatory properties, like black pepper, for example, because of the terpene and the cannabinoids that it has, well, that's why, that's why cannabis helps too, because our bodies interact with the same compounds with the same receptor-based system that we, our body has to elicit similar effects. And when you actually dig into the science, you know, 
you can't ignore basic step one, two, and three of here is a cannabinoid, here it interacts with the receptor, here it generates this effect. And as the research mounts, it's only going to get harder to say cannabis doesn't help because right now the people that say that just haven't done the research. The people who, who consume it daily, the, the veterans who stand up daily that share their story, that know that complete strangers will be listening to their words and getting so personally intimate with the stories that we've lived. There's a reason why we're doing it. You know, before I discovered that just sharing my story could help people, I didn't want to be anywhere on the grid. <laughs> I always wanted to be off social media. And I was a cavalry scout. In my, in, my, in my MLS, if you were seen, you were dead. And so to be on social media, sharing my story these days, um, you know, that, that's kind of, that, sh that should be how you weigh it. As a soldier who, you know, was a, a scout, I was basically, you know, front line, don't be seen. To be out here sharing my story, if you're a veteran and you have doubts, take that into consideration because it really does help. You know, I, I really admire your courage to get out there and share your story. And I can tell you that <laughs> unequivocally, I appreciate you so much for sharing what you've already shared here today as well, because I, I think that it is helpful for people to hear what others have gone through. And, you know, I think that for people who don't understand the benefits of cannabis, too, it's vitally important that they hear firsthand testimony of how cannabis has helped them in order for them to understand that it's not the devil's weed like they've been taught their entire life. Right. And the, the other thing, too, Dan, is that I've heard and I've read a lot of stories about how cannabis has actually helped people to climb up and out of that dark space of wanting to do self-harm and in your experience do you feel as well that cannabis has provided that relief for you from those dark places yes and yes i was going to say yes and no but it's definitely a double yes yes and yes the reason i say that cannabis allowed me to find other areas of my life that allowed me to discover new ways to heal uh, for example, Cinderella 99. I will never forget this string because that was the first time I had smoked weed and I was sitting on my computer and I had, uh, back when it was free loops, you know, it was FL Studio these days, I had that open and I started playing a melody. And at that point, I mean, I had messed around with it in high school for a little bit, but I wasn't, you know, looking to do music. I sat there and I played that melody and I started crying because I hit a, a, a six bar or a six note melody across eight bars and just kept playing it over and over and over and over again. And the more I played it, the more I felt it, the more I cried and I broke down and cried at that laptop because of the way that it felt to put an emotion that I was feeling and hear how it would sound in music. And that melody I played was how happy I felt after Cinderella 99 hit. That allowed me to explore a new avenue, my creative side, and put emotions into music. And I always knew that I found something that was true to me when I could either feel the tingles or the pain that I felt in war was translated into a hook or a 16-bar uh, instrumental something. And I can remember the emotion that I felt while I made that. Not so much where I was, what I was doing, if I'm sitting in the room, but the emotion that created that song. And not just through music, through exploration of, of like yoga, of meditation, of even nutrition and the schedule that I force myself to stick to. Uh, cannabis has kind of helped me get out of my own head and into creating my own purpose in life. You know, the, the days where I had no idea what I was doing were the worst. But when I can wake up and go and look at my whiteboard and say, okay, what am I doing today? All right, I have my checklist. I get up, I start my routine, and that routine is something I've put together over the years that mixes all the best things that make me happy in life in a way that I can manage it. So I don't have to like think, oh, I'm not doing what I want to do, or man, I'm getting done at work, because it's all scheduled. And I basically built myself a military routine, and I'm, you know, it may sound dry to some of those listening, but that still includes you know, Saturday, fun day. Sunday, relax, life items. Nothing else is scheduled, just, okay, Sunday, Sunday or sorry, Saturday, I might go like paddleboarding or go hiking and spend the day out. 
or if it's a networking event that I have to go to for work. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to that networking event and I'm going to make it fun. And I just kind of use my structure to define my lifestyle so that even if life changes and goes in a curveball, it's as expected because now I can just shift my routine and I've turned my, my purpose into existing and being happy and finding ways to explore that happiness. You know, I do have to say I kind of I've cheated here recently. Um, I, I met a girl out here who kind of she's able to handle my my PTSD reactions like to fireworks better than I am sometimes. Um, kind of how you asked earlier, how, what do people do that helps? Uh, she saw that I was kind of on edge, and you know, I kind of snapped at a neighbor, and it wasn't like it wasn't even mean. It was just kind of like a very curt response of. I, I am right now trying to manage my, my response to this firework. I don't know why I came outside. Who are you talking to me? <laughs> and after it happened, I was like, damn, that sounded like I was being mean. And so I kind of, you know, I had to, you know, kind of do damage control and make a friend. But my girlfriends, you know, she's like, I don't, that was weird. I'm like, you know, I'm thinking that was, <laughs> but still have those things. And by having that moment and her kind of openly accepting it and seeing what happened and being curious about it and the way that she responded, that right there, I wish I had had that years ago because it was like an instant switch that I could feel the gears kind of starting and the body was going through its familiar responses to where usually I just kind of say, you know, I need, a, I need some time myself, let it kind of unwind the momentum. But before I even had to say that, she recognized it. And so, you know, that's what I mean by like, if you have someone who understands and listens and can identify that, that is the best piece to it. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of veterans that I talk to where, we refer to our significant others as our rock because sometimes all you really want to do is just kind of let all the guards down and know that they're there and you can trust them. And that's more important than anything because that's what we miss most about service is that trust and that bond. So, yeah. That's an interesting point of view. And I think that's instructive too for loved ones. The support that they can provide to someone when they see changes that could be danger signs in general. It's like, just, you know, be there, be there, listen. Absolutely. Yeah. But, it, and it's interesting too, your take on cannabis, because we don't talk a lot about the happy place that cannabis can bring people to <laughs> in general, because we're often so <laughs> yeah. focused on the science we're focused on, on the, the, impact on the body from a medical point of view and we don't really talk about this the psychedelic part of cannabis because in our education we're really trying hard to get away from a stigma and and i notice that because we're not talking about it we're we're actually proliferating the stigma a little bit so i today i'm kind of appreciating hearing that we have talked to a lot of artists who have expressed that their creativity has been elevated from it. And so it's really interesting to hear you say that as well. But happiness is something that in our culture, anything that is going to bring you to a certain level of joy, it seems like that's a difficult thing for people to actually talk about. And I'm not really sure I, I think so. You know, I, I have a thought for that. You know, right now, I mean, let's be honest. The medical applications of cannabis are what will propel it in the mainstream. That, I think, is an undeniable fact. Civil rights issues aside, the medical piece of it is why the government will actually legalize it because they'll start looking at the medical applications and patents and all the other things that we know come with that. But me as a vet, sure. My pain that went away first, that's why I was interested in it. But the reason I've continued to use it past the time when most likely physical therapy and all the other things, all the other holistics could reasonably manage it is because it just makes me happy. I can tell when I haven't had enough cannabis during the week because I might be a little more irritable. And then knowing my endocannabinoid needs, I'm able to say, okay, well, I need some of this strain to kind of rebalance my system. Sure enough, consume a little cannabis, go on with my day, I feel great. The reason that is so important for veterans especially is when you look at the, the basic hormones, right? Serotonin, epinephrine, uh, oxytocin, and dopamine. So when you look at all of these different things that are going through your body, when you're in combat, you know, it's, it's known, but maybe not as commonly known, 
that the same chemicals that give you pleasure are the same chemicals that are going through your body in times of intense stress. It's just varying degrees of each. So, and I think I've talked about this before, about that bell curve of experience. Combat, boom, boom, explosions, all that stuff. Put it in a pen at the top of the bell curve. Most intense experience by far I've ever experienced. So even in small doses, those same chemicals were associated with the most intense and dangerous moment of my life. Going to Pizza Hut with some friends and laughing, not going to give me as nearly as much stimulation to even get a small boost in the pleasure chemicals. Does that make sense? Absolutely it does. And that's a really interesting, I've never looked at it that way. And you're right. And I think that that's why you hear of adrenaline junkies and it's really a chemical reaction in your body that is feeding something, that intensity that can bring momentary euphoria and people chase that in a way. But it's, it's very interesting to look at that and then compare that to some of the psychoactive effects of cannabis, like anandamide, for example. It is a chemical reaction within the brain that is released uh, with exposure to THC. And that's where that joy factor comes in when you're talking about people using cannabis because it makes them happy. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's actually a chemical reaction that's happening in the brain. And there are a number of different ways we can have that chemical released in our brain to bring us you know, certain amounts of pleasure or joy or whatever. But I would love to look into the difference between just your everyday happy place and what happens when you've gone through those intense moments, those adrenaline moments where your emotions are so keyed in and so highly tuned, forgive the pun, uh, and and then coming back down from that into normal life, and then you don't have that adrenaline or that that same reaction happening on a daily basis, and then using a substance such as cannabis that that sort of regulates the release of of those chemicals. That's something I really want to look into. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, you know, it's when we when we look at cannabis, you know, of course we have some receptors in the brain and some in the body. You know, we see one, CB two. Um, typically I kind of liken it to, you know, I, I love my metaphors, just like how we have the swirling pool that can turn into a whirlpool that you can't swim out of. Same thing with cannabis and matching it to where you're at. You know, when we look at the, you know, I love music. So I always liken my endocannabinoid system to an equalizer. Uh, from the far left is your heavy base, you know, your zero to 20 kilohertz. All the way to the right is your bright spots, your happiness, your 16 kilohertz and higher, right? And so your endocannabinoid system is a 100-bar equalizer that is just moving up and down based off where you're at emotionally, physically, and mentally at any given time. And what I've found to kind of put myself in the happy place is when I'm down, I get a sativa. And I mean down physically or down mentally, just general activity level. I get a sativa, and I consume just enough to where I don't feel down. What I've found is that going a little bit too far right, to, you know, turning the dial a little bit too much. Now I get antsy. Now I get anxious. Now I just got to move. I can't keep my body still. Oops, consume too much. Let's dial it back a little bit. Okay, instead of, say, a quarter gram, I'm going to do one-eighth gram, and that's the sweet spot. And initially, when I first started trying cannabis, and this is one thing I, I highly recommend veterans don't do, don't go overboard right away. Don't go take the, 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 the strong edible. Don't go do a, a dab right away. Don't you know, take a joint and roll it in Keith and throw some clear around it and call it a twax joint. Just don't do that. Start small. Because the only way you actually learn your individual response and your individual needs is by looking at it just like you would with breaking down a weapon or cleaning something. There's a step to it. Or sorry, there's steps to it. There's a process to it. And you have to find that process for yourself. Nobody has designed the SOP yet. You got to do that yourself. And the only way you do that is by looking at it as if you're basically writing the book as every good soldier does for every single thing that we take on in life, projects outside of the service, we tend to build the SOP. So start with yourself. Start with your own body. Use cannabis as the tool to get there. The information is all online. There are people like myself and other veterans that will absolutely, help. if you message me on Facebook, for example, I will respond. 
you message me on LinkedIn, I will respond. I enjoy those conversations and I love sharing what I've learned because I wish I had someone who was giving me these lessons when I was 22 or 23. It would have saved me a lot of uh, a lot of headache. It would have definitely saved me a lot of time of just sitting there on the couch and looking at my 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 gun sitting on the on the table. It would have saved me a lot of that. And uh, if you reach out and you have questions, just hit me up. I'm always an open mind. Thank you for that. And I will definitely put your information online so that people can find you. And if not to Dan, then reach out to someone you love. Yeah, absolutely. Reach out to your rock. Reach out to the person closest to you that doesn't judge. Just lets you talk and be you. And find those people that want to truly understand. And instead of trying to explain it to them in logical terms, just let them see. Like, this is how I feel. This is what causes me to feel that way. Here are the things that I know that help me with bringing my triggers down. And just let them share their life story, their, their lifestyle, because we do things for a particular reason, because we know it keeps ourselves in a safe space. Mm-hmm. You know, even today, like, there's certain things I just don't do. Um, I can do networking events these days because I've been doing them for years to where even that, whether I've been there before or not, a networking event is just, in my mind, mission networking event. Okay, I know what that means. When it was a first-time networking event or an expo or something like that, uh, that was a lesson in anxiety. <laughs> it, was, it was tough the first couple of times. Um, even working at the dispensary years ago, that was tough the first year. Like uh, every day, because I worked in the box and there's so many people, you know, initially it was very tough because talking to people that I haven't met before, oh, this is a new mission. I haven't done this one before. <laughs> you know, I used to make kind of make games here and there to translate, okay, mission, soldier, interact. <laughs> okay. <cool. laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had to. I, I say that that time at the dispensary, you know, helping so many patients and talking to them a day in and day out and seeing how cannabis is helping and then doing my research and becoming kind of like that, that hub for them to use as a resource and guidance towards their strains. That was partially my own treatment because a lot of, like, there were some days that were way worse than others to where I might have been, you know, like how you're saying, like the outside shell. Uh, on the way into work, probably a mess. Walk into work, put a smile on my face. All right, cool. Keep that there for a while. After you're done, go back to your car. You're back in your broken mess. A lot of those days happened because of the stress of not being a soldier who is going through a lot of shit in his head, but being a soldier who is working at a professional establishment. And being in that type of environment and forcing myself to kind of work through all of those, those triggers, that kind of happened almost daily sometimes. Uh, whether I wanted them to or not. And you know, I got really good at kind of figuring out what worked quickly to bring myself back down. So that time in the dispensary was was almost a uh, almost a treatment plan in and of itself. You know, because I was experimenting with cannabis with the different methods of it, experimenting with different things I was doing outside, like really getting into yoga and meditation and music and all the other things that allow me to express myself without judgment. And uh, fun fact, because um, I know a lot of veterans do like painting and music and stuff like that for you know for the, for the same purposes. Um, fun fact about the creative side I found was that the experiences we have between 18 to 23, they will use that as inspiration through all of their art for the rest of their life in some way, shape, or form. Um, so I used to feel bad that when I would draw pictures or have music, there was always a little bit of an edge to it. The creative side of that was kind of coming from like, hey, there's a, there was a time of my life where I had a sharp edge. And I would feel ashamed of it, even my creative side, because I knew that it was like, okay, well, that inspired um, this music. And I'm not entirely comfortable with the times I was there because it still causes me so much internal conflict. And this is this one mindset back then, not today. And, uh, you know, it's hard for me to share my music. But same thing with the stories. Once I shared it and realized it wasn't as big of a deal as I made it out to be. Some people liked it, some people didn't, but it was never like squashed or like that sucks. You should never do that again in your life. Kind of is what, what it felt like once I started telling people what I was going through is that my story, it's, it's not the worst one out there by far. You know, I, when you see me in the streets, if you meet me in person, uh, I'm certainly more well-adjusted to these days to where we can have a great conversation and it'll probably be a great time for both of us. But six, seven years ago, it would not have been anywhere near that. He would have came up and said hi, and I would have looked at you and said hi. And then I would have been, people used to say I was a statue. 
because I was always just so still because, you know, if you're still, they can't see you because you're hiding. But uh, that was just my default mode. But I didn't know how to actually interact and enjoy life. You know, when you're having those feelings, how dare you tell somebody I'm suicidal? Oh, you're just feeling sad. You'll feel better. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's how do you open up to somebody? When I went to the VA and I, I, I was trying to tell them in like all the signs that their textbook said, hey, this person is suicidal without saying, I need to talk to somebody because I'm scared of going home. If you wink, wink, know what I mean, right? Like, I felt like I had to go that far when I, like, I showed up and I'm like, look, I really need to talk to somebody like right now. And it, they made it so difficult for me to actually see somebody. Like, oh, well, you know, we're booked out for like three months. I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like, I drove down here to talk to you. Who's here? I just need like 20 minutes. And I felt like I had to like almost beg my way to grovel and present myself at such a broken moment to the VA for them to help me. It was shitty. You know, we, we talked about that last time about the, the guy who kind of went to the toilet and I was trying cannabis. Oh, well, you're a drug user. Let me write, write that down in your notes. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, you know, and I think that the medical profession doesn't help to destigmatize the emotional scars that lead to suicide as well. And I think that that's mm -hmm. part of the problem that we need to open up in our society and not pigeonhole someone into whatever they believe to be a mental illness that somehow needs to be pigeonholed into. It doesn't need to be stigmatized. I mean, mental distress is equally as debilitating as physical injury. And if people learn to accept that and not, you know, make someone feel ashamed when they say that they have these thoughts or, you know, especially the medical profession. And I know that a lot of um, healthcare practitioners are, are trained to notify or, or, you know, make, uh, I'm not even sure what it is. I have to look that up, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's, there's yeah, this, uh, I do. Uh, kind of like shaming almost. It is almost shaming. It is almost shaming. And, and with the VA and I've had a number of veterans on, this show who have said pretty much the same thing that when they admit to using cannabis to deal with their PTS, then they're pigeonholed also. And, and it goes in the file under, you know, this person is going to need drug rehabilitation or, you know, they shame someone for trying to cope with it, with a disease that you can't see so much on the outside. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's a problem. It is, but this is, you know, conversations like this are what's going to help. We just have to keep the noise up and keep putting people's stories out um, to give others, you know, the inspiration to find their own answers. You know, the government's starting to do things, legislation's starting to do things, but they're only doing that because money's getting involved and people stopped lobbying so hard against it. We know that. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, grassroots, these conversations where it's just you and me chatting and talking very candidly and very openly about what happened and how we feel like, that's the person who I hope listens to this and says, you know what? I am going to do some research and I don't want to convince them. I hope like, it's my sincerest wish that I don't convince anybody who's listening to this to go try it. Cause if I convinced you, then I sold you. That's not what I came here to do. What I came here to do is share my story so that you might find some inspiration to so convince yourself that maybe you've been wrong about what you thought about cannabis in the past. Maybe you were right in thinking that you should have tried cannabis and now it's the time. Yeah, those kind of things. Yeah. Well, hopefully hopefully it will be inspiring to someone and you know, time will tell. So so. so. Well, the reason I bring that up is cannabis, all aspects of the holistic system, take care of your mind, teach to be calm through meditation. Take care of your body, teach to be calm through yoga. Take care of your internals, everything else your organs, your mind, your body, with cannabis and use it as a supplement and put all of them together. Make sure you're sleeping. Make sure your nutrition's on point because those are important. And that, in my mind, is what the solution is for all of these veterans or even society is if you take a pill to clear the symptoms, you, you're just going to have more symptoms pop up. It's like household mold. doesn't go away until you use vinegar. So with cannabis, think of it as the vinegar for all these pills that people have been taking. Because we have way too many stories where 20, 30 pills a week or a day 
return to zero eventually with enough cannabis use over a length of time. And we've seen it. We have people that have done it, that are talking about it. And even the pharmaceutical industry knows that it's effective. Otherwise, they wouldn't be trying to patent things or be trying to get into cannabis at all. So, or fight it. Exactly. Insys, anybody? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, don't get me started on Insys. We don't have time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's such a deep subject that I feel it's only really going to show an answer through the whole piece of what it means to go through these experiences. So I'm, I'm very honored to, to speak with you today and to share these thoughts. And you know, thank you for having me again. Oh, you're certainly welcome. And, you know, I, my hope is that as more and more people become aware of the healing benefits of cannabis, that they will be more accepting of people who choose to use it more for uh, getting to that happy place even than, than, than dealing with a physical ailment. I mean, it seems that society accepts that, like you said, a lot better than they do accepting um, the use of it for being the equalizer for, for whatever is ailing them on the inside on an emotional or mental level. And that's something that society just doesn't talk about that much. And it's such an important thing, I think, to, you can only take something out of the deep, dark shadows if you shed light on it. And once people do start talking about some of these insidious problems that do lead to suicide, uh, I think that we can be more accepting of the idea that there is a medicine that will not only help to prevent some of these deep, dark days, but can actually create a lot more harmony and music, <laughs> like you said. So I do appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So, and we'll, we'll do this again sometime soon, Dan. Thank you so much. Well, Dan, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate your insights and I'm really eager to talk to you more about the music at some point. And so it is time to wrap up the show. I really appreciate you coming on today. This was fun. I, I, uh, I definitely appreciate the, the opportunity. If you are in crisis or having suicidal thoughts, or if you know someone who is considering suicide, we urge you to contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. That number again is 800-273-TALK. This line is available 24-7. We also urge you to open up about depression and help to end the stigma of mental trauma. Just listening without judgment and having a compassionate conversation could save a life. Once again, I'd personally like to thank my guest, Dan Schmink, for sharing his insights and experiences with us today. If you'd like to know more about the work he is doing, or if you'd like to reach out to him, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click podcast to find today's episode. And there you'll find his bio and contact information. We have so many others to thank. First, our sponsors, Alpine Miracle, Canisphere, Hempful Farms, and Compassionate Certification Centers. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our theme song composer, Eric Goodall, my team here at The Cannabis Reporter, and our programming directors at Society Bites Radio and XRQK Radio Network. I'd also like to give a special shout out to our friends over at Cannabis Radio for helping us to distribute our show at iHeart and other venues online. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter radio show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, out to a friend and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.